Apple, man, it's like, hey, how about now? How about now? How about now? I, I got I got this new operating system for you. It's real good. You'll never know the difference, but let me give it to you. So, Richard. Yo, yo. Hello, my friend. I was reading a wonderful news article today. Ooh, I love articles. Yeah, it was in New York Magazine, and the news is basically that the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines mm-hmm. are really effective. They're really good in, like, they people aren't... It's nice getting, to me, read fact, that, isn't it? So let me give you the headline. That's all you're going to need. CDC data suggests vaccinated don't carry and can't spread virus. That's it. That's a wonderful thing. So, you know, for me, I just think about how bananas it is that we went ahead, used mRNA. A new technology. I don't know what the hell that is really. <laughs> but, I, you know, it's like we've been saying it, but and I, I know it's like genetic code for ribonucleic something. Yeah. But like, you know, basically some very nice scientists got together, got together with the little little company called Pfizer. <laughs> Learn called Moderna, and they made these uh, these vaccines, and it's just an absolute triumph of total science. It is a home run. Uh, I was watching something recently, and Dr. Fauci said, "You don't get many home runs in science, and this is an absolute home run." I believe that's he I said. Mean, you got got to take your wins. Got to take the wins where you can get them. Well, right? they're rare, right? Science is never that neat. It's never no. like straight up math. It's all there's always edge cases. There's always the two. You ever hear the warnings? When it's like a, a drug ad on TV, you may get oh, side yeah. effects include, and then the side effects are longer than the actual TV ad. It's also, they're just so apocalyptic because overlaid while someone is picking up their kids from soccer practice because this drug is giving oh, them freedom. Yeah. The, the narrator is saying things like excessive bleeding, dizziness, dementia. <laughs> it just goes oh, on yeah. and on. Meanwhile, she's like, hop in kids. Let's go get some snacks. <laughs> Sanalazizam is very likely to give you rectal knocks. Yeah, yeah, it's a bad scene. And and yeah, no, and it's like, it's just a woman, it's a gladiator, they're touching the wheat. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Okay. So (sighs) it is an amazing thing. And inventing is probably the hardest and the most frightening step. And then there's validating, which is what we sort of, we sort of hunkered down and waited five months, which usually takes years. About four or five months, they tested it on tens of thousands of people. Bless their hearts for giving it a go. Then it becomes about scaling up. Scaling. Sure. And the truth is, this: there was so much urgency around this that the big pharma companies were already scaling up, even though they hadn't gotten the results of the trials yet, which is, from a business perspective, utterly terrifying. Well, that's the thing. This is not business. Like it is, it ends That's up right. The U.S. government, I think, had had given certain assurances of giving people backstops in case it was a fail. But you're talking about billions of dollars getting spent on a thing that might <sighs> not be used. But no, and you know, I think this is the thing. So you have this intense science, like mm-hmm. science with a capital S. We're thinking about chemical compounds. We're figuring this out. And then mm-hmm. you have this other problem, which is how do I make the thing accessible to everyone. Mm -hmm. Full disclosure, it's a software podcast. But it's interesting because you and I were talking about this earlier. Scaling comes in a lot as like the great subject of technology. And I'll tell you why. It's because it it correlates to money, 
right? Like it's you know you can it sit correlates down and come up. to success. That's right. That's yeah. right. So people talk all the time about scaling, but I think the weird secret of our industry, similar to this, and it's just interesting to see this pattern playing out with vaccines, is that the science is really hard and complicated. Computer science is mm-hmm. like writing a new database that does something novel and dealing with all the rules and the logic. And then scaling, it comes in for a lot of drama, but it's actually, it should be pretty simple. It's mm-hmm. a lot of brute force on top of the science. Mm-hmm. And you see that with the vaccine. Yeah. You know, there's, a, there's decisions you make early on that can help you scale. And the risk around those decisions, and it actually played out in the vaccine world, right? Moderna and, and Pfizer had a particular thesis about what the vaccine, how the vaccine should work. Now, there was a downside to it, which is you needed two injections, scaling challenge, And they needed to be really, really cold. They needed to be at freezing temperatures. I think the Moderna one has to be like extremely cold, right? So they're left with this moment saying that's going to be a scaling challenge, right? And so they could say, you know what? Back to the drawing board because we needed to be one shot and we needed to not be so cold. But the challenge with that is now you've introduced risk in exchange for being better equipped to scale. And the truth is, a company like Moderna, who the entire business plan is around mRNA, that wasn't even an option for them. They didn't know, they don't do anything else. That's all they existed right. for. So that wasn't on the table. A Johnson & Johnson comes along and they're like, okay, those guys are doing it that way. We're going to give it a go this way. And what they're doing is when you're laying out a strategy, you're going to make some decisions early on that could fail, but are better equip you to scale early days, right? right? That bargain that you have to make is a very, very tricky one. I often bring up when we're debating decisions, especially in a strategic context, I often say, why are we debating the problem we don't have yet? I mean, this is the great danger of technology. This is what we love to do. We love to do it. A lot of problems are solved in our world, Richard. I was having a conversation with a potential client today. We were kind of locking in what we're going to do. And, you know, they want to build a platform. They want to build some good stuff. Mm-hmm. But the reality is 90% of what they need is done. It's open source. It's available. The actual computer science of it is long established. We know how the network's going to work. And then there's a 10% of it that's novel. You know, and, and immediately your head skips it. What I've learned over the last five years is your head skips ahead to the part where you're going to make a million of these things. You're going to stand up a million mm-hmm. sites. You're going to get a, you're going to get a billion users and you're going to, you know, this that and the other. And really the reality is everybody's going to come in, they're going to use the same it's almost like a grammar. Like it's like, oh, this is the CMS. This is the this, this is the that. We're going to put You're touching on a reality that technologists really have a hard time processing, which is most of it is the same as it was 20 years ago and 15 years ago and 10 years ago. It's just not that exciting. Every now and then that you you try to break out, like remember the NoSQL movement? Yeah. There was going to be, and I mean, look, MongoDB, (laughs) big database, it's kind of the absolute focus of the NoSQL movement there. And and everybody got, you know, Mm. this database will work differently. It'll be more like JavaScript. You'll just dump your stuff in it. It'll all go from there. That is a company worth like $16 billion now. Mm. It's not like there was a failure there, Mm -hmm. but people have kind of, including Postlight, like just been rolling back to the databases that work the way they did 25, You know what you've got. You know what you've got, right? Look, technologists love forging ahead. It's akin to, hey, I want to redo the stoop to my building. 
general contractor says, hey, I want to show you something. And he gives you a really glossy brochure. And it's like, it's a new type of cement. It doesn't crack. I was like, huh, how long has this been out? Well, it's not out yet, but it's coming and it's going to be great. <laughs> how do you know it doesn't crack? <laughs> how do you know it doesn't crack? So technologists love to keep growing and learning, right? And they want well, to And what use... we like to do is there'll be a new platform, like suddenly Node.js, JavaScript, mm-hmm. runs on the server instead of in the browser. It's pretty interesting. And then every single piece of code that has ever been written before has to be written again, but this time inside of Node.js. Right. right? I actually don't want to discourage that exploratory spirit of learning the new thing and playing with a new thing and because it does something really amazing. But at the same time, it it skews off of the actual agenda of what you're trying to get done. The paradox there is you need it and it's fine. And people reinvent the world in new ways all the time. Our clients don't pay us for that. No client pays you for that. Yeah, that's right. The truth is a lot of platforms out in the world, A, they just kept building on them. I mean, Facebook was PHP, and then what they did was they kept eating away at the bottlenecks and rewriting them in high, highly performant components and kept going and going. They made their own virtual machine for PHP. Like, it just starts to become... That's a smart know, they, way, though, Paul, because what you're saying is, you know what, let's get this out. Let's see what the world does with it. And then we'll deal with that problem when we get to it. And, and you know, software is amazing in that you can surgically carve out bits that are clearly clogging up the pipes and make them really, really fast. And you can do that. And software doesn't care. A Python's not going to get offended if there's a piece of C code in the middle of it. It just doesn't give a shit. It really likes that. It respects it. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's a positive thing. Everybody's, it's a warm, friendly place. I think when people get religious, uh, I think is where you start to run into, into danger. I guess, I, let me pose a question to you. We are scaling up today. It is April 1, 2021. It's pretty amazing. New York State has just opened up vaccinations for pretty much everybody. It's not hard anymore to go get vaccinated. And it's a pretty amazing thing. There are 300 plus million people in this country. We're into two digits now, right? Like 15, 16% of the population has been vaccinated. Like we're starting to see we're past that first step and into like the 50th step. Yeah. And so I guess... Standing up a factory is real. Like, what can we learn with regards to scaling? How do you scale? Like, there's so many. If I type scaling white paper right now, I'm going to get a lot of articles about how to scale. Well, this is fun, right? We watched, we were talking about this. We were watching and and sort of reading up on it. So what did they do to scale up vaccine production? It's all lots of little things. Like, it's like, well, we got to get a factory. And then they show you the thing that puts together the lipids and the the mRNA. And it's like, it's one little, it's like a tube with three nozzles. Two, two nozzles. It's not impressive. (laughs) It's it's, it's a little, it's like a little disc. It's like a little hockey puck. And two tubes go in with mRNA and lipids and they they squeeze together at a certain pressure. And then the vaccine comes out. Yeah. Simple solution. And then it's like, okay, well, we got that. How do we do this, this thing? A zillion times. And then, you know, we're, we're watching, we were watching a video together because that's what we do. We watch like Salesforce demos and CNN videos because we're, we're old now. <laughs> that's what you do, I think. And, uh, you know, they needed more dry ice, but they couldn't get enough dry ice. So they figured out at the Pfizer plant how to make the dry ice because that's a lot easier than trying to solve the dry ice supply chain problem. And, you know, you need new spaces. The guy who came up with... Here's what you do. Plug one tube into the little disc thing, plug another tube in and smash them together like really, really hard. I'm going to level a criticism to the technology world. Okay. Brought in a package of love and care 
towards the engineers everywhere. Technologists love, they love criticism. There is nothing more beautiful than like 20 lines of elegant code that don't call another 6,000 lines of code. We have reached a point where you're just folding in packages. And next thing you know, the, you think it's got easy. You think it all got real easy. But the dependency chains and all the things that kick in, that's unimpressive to me. What is impressive to me is a real focus on simplicity and not overthinking things and saying, this really basic thing I just put together here works. And it works nicely. And you're going to get to stand it up in 10 minutes. The vaccine supply chain is actually a great example. I appreciate that a brilliant person spent a career, got PhDs, and figured out how what the vaccine needed to look like and be in order to help people fight off coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Right? Like I think that that is like it's a, it's beyond me. And I'm not gonna right now. I'm not gonna spend a ton of time getting all the details. But what I love, what gives me joy in life, is the little details. And it's the same. It is the same thing with technology. When you're talking about that 20 lines of code, what you're talking about is that. It's an abstraction. I love a good abstraction that because what an abstraction does is let you actually perceive the world in a slightly different way and it's simpler. So you go, oh, that's incredibly obvious. And now I understand. I, you taught me something. Mm-hmm. I learned. I got, and I'm, I'm a primate. I am a, a very large, intelligent chimpanzee. You gave me a new tool and a new sense of control and understanding in the world as I see it when you gave me those 20 lines of code. Or you showed me the little disk that you put the, you pump the liquids into. Some things are beyond me, and that's okay. I'm not going to invest the time, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm not smart enough. But the other things, I'm like, oh, my God. Is, and it, that becomes a real joy. It's not necessary that I'm going to pick up and start writing code on top of it, but you just really appreciate it aesthetically. It's like, wow, you took something really complicated. And I have to say, like, you can see it between, that's the difference between the junior engineer and the senior engineer and the junior designer and the senior mm. designer. Like the, the senior is the person where all of that work gets abstracted away and they show you the thing and you go, oh, mm-hmm. and it's surprising. And at the same time, it's reproducible. You're like, that's how you should solve that. Mm. Very good. Onward. It's fun to install stuff, Paul. It's really fun to install stuff. You know who believes that? Every single device I have bought in the last five years no, because but nothing I, even stops in installing. Yeah, exa- yeah, nothing stops <laughs> installing, right? But even in the engineering world, I'm a huge fan of Plex server. It's a media server you can run in your house. Every three days, it asks me if I can update the Plex server tonight. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> Every yeah, yeah. three days. You know what I used to be in awe of? PlayStation 2 games, not because of the games. There were some really good games, but not because of the games. But because once they press those CDs... Oh, you're done. There's no patches. <laughs> there's nothing coming. Uh, there's nothing. It was it's a like, good luck. Game. Meanwhile, it's like, oh, we released Cyberpunk 2077 or whatever the hell it's called. It was a complete disaster. But they're still going to be able to pull it out in the clinch and just re- release a whole nother one Oh, no. Later. Yeah. I've I, I, been messing around with my Flight Simulator 2020. There was a patch that just said Ireland. Like apparently they, they Ireland had bugs and they just they, <laughs> they sent forward like new like terrain data or whatever it was. Someone should make another game called Flight Simulator Simulator where you just sit there and click buttons to uh, install updates. It's remarkable. They're gigabytes of updates on top oh, of gigabytes. It's, so bad. it's remarkable. It's so bad. It's not that different in terms of appreciating a great minimalist design, a design that just seems to strip everything away and just feels really intuitive and thoughtful. Code is to me is a a form of communication. Like I view code, a code base 
as almost like a document, just a collection of instructions. And I think that's my legal brain thinking about this artifact that doesn't do anything except tell something else what to do, right? Which is what a contract does and what other things do, right? Like 5% of code actually functions that way. You know, I mean, this is one of one of the things I'm a big fan of is the Python standard library because it's incredibly readable. And that's one of the guidelines for things going into that. So for people who don't know, you know, Python's a programming language. A language has a library that kind of comes with, Python's very big on that. It's, it's batteries included. It comes with lots of tools for like downloading things from the internet yeah, or parsing yeah, URLs. built or, in doing math. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you read that code and again, over and over again, it is not mysterious. It's just this like, oh, that's really obvious. The same is actually true of a lot of Unix source code, things like that. When you go in and look at them, you'll be like, oh, the way they solve that is the way you would expect them to solve it. Except it's really well organized. They've done the research and every now and then they'll just pull some miracle out of the world where they'll be, you'll be like, oh, they know a lot of math. That's a lot of math right there. I think you're, you're making a great point here because what you find is Python is adored in non-technology communities, non-programming communities. Data scientists love it. Blender is really popular amongst 3D rendering. People who need to run like large scripts. It's got, yeah, it's got Python built in. Yeah. yeah or, or it calls out to it. And I think what people appreciate, what those people appreciate is like, okay, you focused on my thing, not the program. You didn't yeah. get it. it. It wasn't programming as fetish, right? So, and I think... That is a beautiful thing. I also think, you know, we're sitting here crapping on on all the modern stuff that makes the web work today. That stuff was built for and was designed to be appealing to engineers and engineering culture, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and it was like, I got you all the stuff that you like and they, they connected to it yeah. and it's been, and they've built from there, right? So no one makes better tools than engineers to service other engineers. Other types of engineers. Yes, yes. That's right. But when you think, so languages are software, right? Think of a language as software to help engineers get their job done. I think you made a really good point there, which is that Python and a few other languages, Julia, you know, which is another science uh, and math driven language. They're not focused on the engineers. They're focused on uh, different classes of users. And so as a result, those are the people who get motivated and excited by them. But it creates this funny dynamic, okay? Because the engineer, a Python programmer, Kind of culturally, and I, I'm going to say this and throw it out and, and people might disagree with it, but like a Python programmer is a servant of other industries and other activities. Mm. Right? A lower level, like a Rust programmer is an engineer. Someone doing complicated... That's right. They're thinking about the computer and the, mm. they're thinking about, you know, memory and and their and type safety and yep. so on. And it's, it gets closer and closer to math. And then on the Python side, you can do all that. But you're actually kind of like, well, how can I help you? I need to make you something. <laughs> right, okay? right. You know, so like Django is a good example. It was a CMS that was built for newspapers. Like it was built inside of a newspaper. It was built for people who need to get work started really quickly as journalists. And then you could kind of build your your web platform around that. Mm. And so like I got to say as I, as I, you know, we're a client service company, right? So it's a funny paradox in what we do, which is that we have a very – focused, very intense engineering community that that really is connected to the modern web stack and those modern tools. And they're really good at it and they get a lot of work done. But our clients don't care about that. No, they, they don't. They need to get their thing. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they're like, hey, I know what you are and I know I want that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But true, true. 
especially if it's like a big tech company. But most of our clients are like, what? Uh, I don't know. What do you? Okay. I just, I need a thing. We find the greatest success as an agency when we talk to clients in their domain, in their context. Yeah. And rather than saying, let me tell you about all the cool components we're going to bring to this project. <laughs> they don't want to hear that. The new buyer of services who just like needs a website and an app and so on, they tend to come and be like, hey, you've never built a rubber band focused website before, have you? But we're a rubber band manufacturer. (laughs) (laughs) You do have to work through that every time. But then there are the people who are like in a a relatively large organization, let's say like a a not-for-profit, and they'll be like, oh... We help people get groceries and we manage relationships with people over time because, you know, we tend to have at least six months of a relationship and so on. They're thinking often in acronyms, not in technologies. They're thinking it's going to be a little bit like a CRM, yeah. you know, yeah. or they're going to be and, and I need a content component. They're thinking in terms of categories. And then our job becomes to partner with them and figure out how to translate that into technologies. Yeah. The hardest thing to learn for me was that. Those categories might make sense. There's a reason they exist. CRM is a horrible acronym. It's just horrible. It means nothing. But the reason it exists is because it abstracts away all the technologies underneath and gives people on two sides of a table something they can talk about. It's not a technical acronym. It's a real world how I work in the real world acronym. That's, That's the point of it. The holy grail is the technologist that just unapologetically loves the technology and loves the latest thing but has the requisite empathy to talk to non-technologists in such a way where they appreciate the value of the thing. That is a rare thing, right? The one shortcoming I do see on the Python side is they almost despise the nuts and bolts of it. They're, they're almost, they, they sort of like, ah, it's not for here. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Calm down, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, the thing yeah. is, a technologist that is curious and is always growing and is really on top of all the latest best ways to do things, but then says it in such a way, right? Frames it in such a way so that non-technologists appreciate things like Docker and why that's valuable from a business perspective rather than getting into the nuts and bolts of it. You give me 10 of those and you, you conquer the world, right? Like that's, that is the ultimate. It's hard to find. It's actually hard to find. I think we try to cultivate it in Postlight just because of how we are and who we are and the way technology interfaces with other parts of the organization. Well, you know, the trade-off is that if you're a technologist and you come work for Postlight, you're going to get to use very modern tools. We're not going to make you use Java from 12 years ago, right? It may not be the the incredibly abstract new approach that's taking the world by storm, you know, on Hacker News last week. Right. But then again, sometimes it is. We're shipping um, Elixir code into giant government organizations right now and and happily with full transparency about what it is. Elixir is a a very modern programming language. Mm -hmm. Programming language focused on lots and lots of connections happening at once. So we we make that deal. But then the, the corollary to the deal is that you have to learn how those ideas present to the wider world. You can't just sell Elixir. You can't sell JavaScript. Yeah. That's not what people want to buy. Very often, the latest thing is used as a marketing vehicle, as a way, uh, but even that, you can't go that far. Like you, if you go on big consulting websites, you won't see Elixir and GraphQL. What you see is Internet of Things, AI, and ML because- No, this is true. It's only the very technology-centric firms that even list that stuff. That's right. That's right. This is a a wrestling match for us because we don't – if somebody wants Elixir, we want them to call Postlight. 
But most of our clients don't want anything in particular. <laughs> right. They want the thing solved is what they want. They want the thing solved and you seem like nice people. That's that's what they're going for. Let's bring this back to scaling in the supply chain. When mm-hmm. we were talking about the virus earlier, we were talking about how, you know, here's the vaccine. It's been intense science, but the actual scaling of it is surprisingly simple. It's big clunky machines. It's dry ice. Every aspect of it can be understood by it's somebody not exciting. just walking around it's I mean, not. It's a lot of little solutions. When I hear a problem put in front of me, and that could be you know weeks of digesting what a problem is, once it's solved, I'm kind of done. You know, it's like once a platform is architected, the architect is kind of done. But then there's this stuff that's kind of you could argue less glamorous and less exciting, but is really going to be the make or break, right? And things like dry ice, things like scaling a platform. Things like glass. Do you remember at one point, like they kept saying, but there's no glass. And I was freaked out. I was like, what do you mean there's no glass? Mm-hmm. Like we've got the vaccines. No, yeah, no, we've we got large vats them, yeah. of vaccines, but we got no glass. I'm like, what do you mean? Just empty Mountain Dew bottles. <laughs> like, what do you want from me? Like no glass. What kind, what kind Tear of Tear down the building. Yeah, yeah. It just, it, you know, logistics is boring. That dude who came up with the little nozzle thing that allowed them to make the vaccine faster. It's probably not like, you know, at the top of the chain in terms of PhDs on top of PhDs. It doesn't matter. He's not getting the, he's not getting the Nobel prize. He's not getting the Nobel prize. He's just like, you know what, if you. No, no, he's going to get, I mean, he probably has a PhD in biochem, but he's going to get the like supply chain logistics, uh, you know, (laughs) innovator of the year, 2020 award, right? Like he's not. It's floating in glass. It's that, 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 that sort of. The one that sort of sits at the desk. Yeah, no, he's getting he's getting a lucite award. That's a right. lucite. No, award. I mean that's that's us too, though. Ultimately, I'm a lucite award receiver. Let me let me say the thing I think we're saying because I think it'll piss everybody off, and I don't know if I fully agree with it. Solving the core problem is can often be really really hard, but if it's hard to scale, you might be doing it wrong. Yeah, I mean this is the, this is the, the point I made earlier, which is when you solve the main problem. Are you just solving it? Are you solving it with some foresight towards what's going to come at you? This is a controversial DevOps opinion in the age of Kubernetes and containerization, Richard. We might have just we might have just set fire to the whole company. No, I, I think we should. I think we've never talked about DevOps. Uh, you know, a lot of people are like DevOps, like are listening. Maybe we should actually dive into it and speak to this guy because to me, what's happened is the idealism and the perfectionism of engineering has seeped into. support. Uh, IT services. And what you have is, and they had a baby, right? And that baby is DevOps. And what DevOps is saying is, we are not just here to make sure the lights are on. We are here to, as an interface towards future proofing whatever got built, right? Yeah. And for a while I was confused by it because like there were engineers who were saying, oh, I'm also DevOps. I'm like, what do you mean you're DevOps? Why would you want to do that to yourself? And it turns out it is an art in and of itself. And what it speaks to is maintainability and scalability, right? That's really what we're talking about, that the software isn't ever handed off, really. It is a living, breathing thing that is going to continue to need good, thoughtful thinking throughout. You yeah. don't launch yeah. it and wish for the best, right? And that's that's the world we live in today. I still am impressed, incredibly impressed, by people who write firmware that can never be updated, People who put out PS2 games that can never be updated. I remember I used to get a dozen like small floppy disks from my Microsoft Word. They would get mailed to me. It was the strangest thing. Oh yeah. It's no, like it used to be the Word. you know you 
I think this is an artifact of this moment. I think when they make funny videos in the future about the years, you know, 2010 to 2030, mm. popping up, you have to upgrade this will be a big part of it because it's ridiculous. I have to upgrade everything. I have to update my phone, which has to update its apps. Everything has my, to update My light the thing. switch. I have a Wi-Fi light switch. It's like, we need to upgrade it. I'm like, what do you mean? When I hit on, it goes on. When I turn it off, it goes off. All's good. It's very dangerous for people like you and me with sysadmin tendencies because it's like, oh, well, you know, what about the firmware on my microphone, my USB microphone? Is yeah. my camera up to date? My Remarkable Reader, my iPad, my phone, my... And then it's like, what about my monitor? Does my monitor have firmware? It right? does. Just, I, I want to close with does, this. Yeah. I'm going to full confession. I want to close with a confession, Paul. I really love upgrading stuff. I feel so good about well, it. <laughs> well, no, I can't help it. That's a problem. It's an obsession. Like I, I feel need, like you I know, fixed everything. Uh, when Apple pops up that little like, hey, time for your Mac OS update tonight. Yep. And you're like, no, I don't really want to. And it's like, yeah, yeah uh-uh, uh-uh, you're going to be upgraded. Nothing. You know what I have to do? Because I'm on, I'm on Linux at home until the pandemic's over, at which point mm. I'm going back to the Mac. And that machine is also my gaming machine. So I have to log into Windows. Mm-hmm. Reboot. And I mean, so I'm, you know, I'm mostly, I'm, I'm just got my computer up, my work computer working all the time, but you know, about once every two weeks I go into windows and it, and I'm to play a little flight, flight simulator and it's about an hour. It's an hour every single time. Yeah, like and I you've got a fast connection too. It's, it's pretty remarkable. I have no, cause I am still, I got that, that it's like Xbox for PC where you can down, I have like 12 games from a subscription service Yeah, and it's. Every single time I go into Windows, about 35 gigabytes of new data needs to come it's down It's absolutely pipe. remarkable. And then I have to restart, and it reboots back into Linux. And it's I go, interesting that you think this you know, is temporary. I don't think it'll ever quite end. It's not like we're going to create secure systems. But this, the amount of intervention necessary, I think, will go down to zero. Because it's, it's just a ridiculous situation. Eventually, we'll stop restarting. You'll have containerization yep. on your phone. So the core kernel will only need to be rebooted every six months. And... Everything else will be running inside of a, a virtual machine that it's easier to restart. That's where we're headed. I think this is about pragmatism, ultimately. I love the idealism and the perfectionism of engineers. I do. I really appreciate it. I, I, there's something, you get a high out of refactoring and making things great, but it is also about balance and pragmatism. I think we see that because a pandemic will teach you about pragmatism because the shit's got to get out. You could sit yep. here and architect the best thing. But you know what? Michigan hasn't gotten a shipment in four days. You better just get it out, right? And I think that's a wonderful thing. I just talked to a client with an unrealistic deadline. And I was like, look, that's an unrealistic deadline. Hold on to it. Yeah. Don't, yeah, don't yeah, let yeah, it go yeah. just yet. Exactly. You know, keep everybody on their toes, including us. But, you know, I also need to tell you right to your eye, to your face, sure. that's unrealistic. You need that sense of like, what is the fastest, cheapest, simplest thing we can do? Or otherwise, humans want to do it right. It's our great... It's the greatest thing about humans, and it's also our greatest failings. We want to do it right so bad. This time will be different. We're going to architect an entire economy, and it's going to be wonderful. And everyone's going to, you know, just or, or whatever. We yeah. just, we love to think big, and you can't actually think big out of the gate. Got to get those little abstractions right. Look for the good, high-quality stuff, and then you can put that together. But if you do want to think big, Paul, who should you reach out to? Oh my goodness, that's a great question. Postlight.com. I, mean, I, I, I don't um, even know anymore. Check us out. Um, we do big and small efforts. We touch all kinds of sectors from content to publishing to finance to 
nonprofits to we did a great project for the MTA. There's a great case study on the site. Hit us up, right. postlight.com. Reach out with questions. Hello at postlight.com. Uh, we love talking. Go get your vaccine. We want to see you at the office soon. The office is opening back up. We're based in New York City. We're all over the place nowadays, but we're based in New York City. So check us out, postlight.com. And uh, everyone, be well. Have a wonderful week. Bye.